Good morning, church family. My name is Gretchen Saffles, and today's reading is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Gretchen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Happy Independence Day. You guys are the, uh, sorry, I got to center, I got to center the podium here. Um, happy Independence Day. If, if there's ever a Sunday to miss a s- church, you know, it's the Sunday when you know the senior pastor's not here, and that also coincides with Independence Day. And so uh, we really appreciate Uh, you guys all being here. And uh, as Thomas mentioned at the top of the service, we're actually kicking off a new sermon series. Uh, We're going to be walking through the book of Titus over the next four weeks. So uh, I'm preaching today and several other pastors will be preaching in the weeks ahead. Uh, Today we'll be looking at the church and uh, ultimately what we hope as a church family is that whenever the Lord returns, that we will be found faithful. That is the goal of our church. We want that to always be our goal. That was the goal for the church at Crete that we're going to hear about here in just a little bit. That was ultimately Paul's ministry, is that he would be an equipper of the saints such that they would lead and participate in churches that are faithful, that are healthy. And so we've been speaking to different segments of our church family over the, over the summer. Uh, we did an, a, a Worship in the Arts series, uh, particularly focusing on how we as image bearers can bring honor and glory to God through the arts. Uh, This past series, we spoke to single folks uh, and others who are around single folks to help give categories to see that as a single person, you can be glorifying to God. You can honor God in your life. And and this week or this series, we're going to focus as we finish the summer on the whole church. We want to be found faithful. And in God's good providence, uh, he actually gave us caricatures of churches who would struggle with certain things in the past because he knew that Christians for all time would struggle with these very same things. And so we get, a, we get insight into a church uh, today uh, and through this series in the book uh, of Titus. Uh, Titus. It was, it was written to uh, Paul's disciple, Titus. Uh, the introduction that Gretchen just read is one of his longest introductions. You know, Paul is notorious for writing run-on sentences. And that is just one big sentence in the Greek. Uh, but in our English, we've broken it down differently. And there's a lot to unpack from the introduction alone. But there's a lot in this whole book, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. But first of all, I think it's helpful for us to understand who the Crete folks are. Who are the Cretans? Um, What is the situation that they found themselves in, and who is Paul, or why is Paul instructing Titus uh, in this way? Uh, Who are these people? Well, Crete is an island just south of Greece. I think we've got a picture of this. It's a pretty great space. I mean, if you go Google, hit images, Crete, beautiful. It's like a place that you want to visit. I mean, it's just like a extremely beautiful island right there in the Mediterranean Sea um, that has played a really significant role in church history, obviously. We are in being impacted by uh, this island, uh, even uh, this morning. Uh, Crete was a significant place because it was oftentimes a respite for boats and ships. It had harbors uh, as people were journeying across the Mediterranean for trade, for economic purposes and whatnot. Crete was a place that they would stop. Uh, Crete was significant in that it had developed cities. You know, Titus, his, his um, goal, his purpose, which is found in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may 
put what, it, what remained into order to appoint elders in every town that, as I directed you, his job was to go to the towns throughout Crete and help set up elders, help set up churches that would be healthy, faithful models of what a church should be. But another really significant thing about Crete is this. It was the home of Greek mythology. In fact, it was the birthplace of Zeus. And this is really significant because what we're going to see in the church of Crete is that they tend to be more philosophical-minded than practical-minded. They, they would rather think about and talk about philosophy about God, even if it's right doctrine, right theology, rather than practice right theology. Greek mythology was essentially a man-made narrative that allowed people to deal with the difficulties and the blessings of life. They needed categories. We as human beings need categories for understanding our very existence. We need these things. And you see this effort to define a narrative by which we can find ourselves in so that we can know that we matter in this world all throughout human history. Religions spurt up because this is what people are seeking to do. Crete found itself right in the middle of this narrative where they, on an island that's beautiful, a destination place where people would like to stop and go and visit and see. Uh, it's also the place where the god Zeus is from. And God, as you might, or Zeus, as you might remember, he was the father of all human beings. He was the protector of all things. It was because of Zeus that all things came to pass in Greek mythology. They were in a right position to think very highly of themselves. But we also learn about the people of Crete in Acts chapter 2. And this is the very first time we see in the gospel narratives or in the New Testament uh, the story of the Cretans and how God has intercepted their hearts in their story. In Acts chapter 2, you have this wonderful moment of Pentecost where the gospel is, be is being uh, proclaimed, people are believing from all different nations. And in verse 11 of, of chapter 2, we see this, that there were both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These people from Crete who were in many ways self-sufficient, they felt like they ruled the world because Zeus was there. They, a group of them just so happened to be in Jerusalem at the time when the gospel was being preached. And what happened? God disrupted their story. He caused them to believe that the way of Greek mythology is not true living, but rather true life and true hope is found in a God-man who would come and die on the cross for sinners. What took them to Jerusalem that day? I don't know. I don't know what took them there. I've not, maybe you know. My research didn't, didn't turn that up. But, but you could imagine Jerusalem also was a, a hub city for business. Maybe the Cretans were there on business and they just so happened to, um, to hear the gospel. And isn't that the way God uses us in the world? Uh, it, it is so often in today's age that people are coming to faith through relationships that are established in the workplace or in the neighborhood, across the dinner table, where people really actually get to know one another. They interface with someone who communicates the gospel to them. They were not there on a Christian crusade. Billy Graham had not invited them to Jerusalem. They were probably there on business, and God used their journeys to draw them to himself. And so they went back home. They went back home to their great island of Crete, but their lives were totally different now. They had formerly believed that they understood everything according to the, the Greek myths and Zeus, and now they were trained and taught, and God had caused them to believe that hope and life was found in Christ. And so they go back home, and they do what Christians do. They begin to gather together. They begin to seek to build community around this new identity, this new faith that they have. And of course, they would be doing this in opposition to so much of that which was around them. But they knew that God had given them 
a new identity. And so the situation is that they have, you have new converts who go back to this awesome island, and Paul, being a man whose life mission is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to, to, um, to help pastors lead faithful churches, he sends one of his very own disciples, or rather, he leaves one of his very own disciples there to set things in order. He's in Crete to do the work that the Lord had called him to do. And this letter that we get to peer into over the next four weeks is Paul's encouragement to a man who is seeking to set up faithful churches all throughout. Paul, he wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Many of them are called uh, epistles, uh, but these in particular, or this one in particular, is called a pastoral epistle. This book is different from many of the other writings of Paul, things like, or books like Galatians and Romans and Ephesians and Colossians. Those are all epistles, of course, but those are letters written to whole churches. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are letters from Paul written to pastors, men who are doing the work of ministry, and they all carry their own unique emphasis. In 1 Timothy, you've got an emphasis that Paul is communicating that Timothy needs to protect the gospel. In 2 Timothy, you've got Paul uh, exhorting Timothy to proclaim the gospel. And here in Titus, you've got Paul exhorting Titus to lead the churches to practice the gospel. We need this because we, just like the people of Crete, are inconsistent. We believe things that are true with our whole hearts, and yet we don't always follow suit with our actions. We need to hear this today. We want, ultimately, as I said earlier, to be found faithful as a church when Christ returns. And so how do you do this? Well, has anyone in, in 2021 sought to get rid of the COVID-19? Not, not the disease, but the 19 pounds of extra body weight that you may be carrying uh, all throughout. You know, there's, there's a big effort, obviously, for people to kind of to get back out there, to start exercising again, to get outdoors, to get healthy. Being healthy requires work. Uh, human beings, if we just exist, we, we don't, our trajectory is not one of health. We have to discipline ourselves to certain things. We have to eat the right things. We, we have to be about doing the right things. And so it is true with the church. Listen to this. In verse 16, you kind of get an idea of what we're dealing with with the church at Crete. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are disobedient or detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is not what you want to be said of your church, is it? Christ Covenant, church family, like this is not what we want to be said of us. Not because we want to be prideful about our ability to be good people, rather because we want people to know that the gospel of Christ actually has the power to change you. And so what do people say about you? I think it's an appropriate question for us to each ask. Your neighbors, what do they say about you? What do they say about your home, your, your coworkers? What do they say about you? Do, are they saying there's something different about him or there's something different about her that speaks to something greater than this physical life can offer? Or are we, like the Cretans, found in the same way as being detestable, disobedient to God's word? Ultimately, what we'll see throughout this sermon series, I think, is that right doctrine, when it is divorced from godly living, godly living, it is ultimately dangerous and confusing for the world around us. And so there's so much that we could talk about in this sermon, and hopefully that groundwork that I just laid will, will serve as a foundation for understanding all that we will hear 
in the weeks ahead. But today, I want to focus on two things in particular, and it's really two questions. The first question is this, what is the church? And the second question is, what is the fruit of the church? What is the church, and then what is the fruit of the church? You know, the most common word in the New Testament for the word church is ecclesia. If you've been around here long enough, this is something that Jason talks about a fair amount, right? This is, this is an important word for us because we have experienced many kinds of churches, right? And, and church gatherings, are, they look different depending on where you gather. There are some fundamentals that should be a part of every worship service, uh, certainly, uh, but church fundamentally should be understood as ecclesia. It is the called out ones. It is not a building. It is not a gathering necessarily of just people. It is a gathering of people who have been called out. And this is what we need to remind ourselves of as a church family, that we are those who have been called out of this world. We have been called out of our sin We've been called out of our sinful desires into new life with Christ. But as we have been called out, we've also been called together. The Cretans who were visiting Jerusalem, they went back to Crete and they gathered together to worship. We are a people who have experienced the grace of God. The Spirit has opened our eyes to know Him. Our hope is found in Christ, and we are called out, but we're called together. But there's really two aspects to this ecclesia that are true, and I think that are helpful for our purposes today. The first aspect, or the first um, expression of those who God has called out is the universal church, right? It's the universal gathering. Uh, this universal gathering is really the most important of all gatherings. This universal gathering is the gathering where all of the saints of God throughout history who have found themselves identified and in union with Christ will gather around the throne of Christ to worship Christ forever. This is the trajectory of all of human history. This is the trajectory of every faithful church. This is the hope of every faithful church. This is what God is seeking to do. He is seeking all throughout the history of the Bible to build a people, to call out a people for himself where he will be their God and they will be his people and they will worship the Lord in spirit and truth forever. We, as Christ's covenant, are a part of this universal church. This is something that's amazing, but as a pastor, it's also encouraging. The, the gospel and the kingdom of God is not just dependent on you, okay? God is doing his work throughout the world. And we, at our last members meeting, we prayed for all of the other churches in Atlanta uh, that, that God is using to build his kingdom. There's a universal church reality that is ultimate. It is the place where all, it is where all things are going Every knee will bow and confess that Christ is Lord around his throne one day. The universal church. But there's another aspect to the church, and it's the local gathering, the local earthly gathering opposed to the universal heavenly gathering. And this, too, is obviously very important to the New Testament authors, uh, the Gospels instruct the church. The epistles are written directly to the churches. There's a way to do church faithfully. There's a way to pursue faithfulness as a local body. But it's important to understand the heavenly church before we discuss this local gathering, because local gatherings ultimately should be small displays of that universal gathering. They should be small pictures, a microcosm of what will be ultimate one day. Even in Matthew 18 and verse 20, we read this from Jesus, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see, when people gather around the name of Christ locally here on the earth, we are reflecting 
we are participating in what we consider ultimate reality. This is a small picture of what we get to look forward to forever. And so it's essential that we get this right. It's essential that we don't put filler into these worship services because whenever we are around the throne of God, we will see him with unveiled face and we will get to worship him forever. Our wildest dreams will come true. That is the hope of heaven. And when we gather together on a weekly basis, we should be a reflection of that ultimate thing. Bernard Howard, it's, it's Independence Day. There's not much more American than chocolate chip cookies, right? And so I'm probably going to eat a few of them later. But Bernard Howard explains the local church gathering in this way. He says, the local church isn't a piece of the heavenly church. It's like a tiny chunk broken off of a big cookie. Instead, instead, it's a miniature realization of the whole heavenly thing. The local church isn't a piece of the, of the heavenly gathering, like a tiny chunk. Instead, it's a miniature realization of the whole thing. Isn't this a gift? We, we tarry through this world with great difficulties and trials. There's toils and snares. There's, there's times where we fall. There's times when our hope is little. There's times when we forget that, like verse 2 says, in the hope of eternal life that we're called to. We forget that. But God in his good grace has given us this weekly rhythm of the church gathering to remind us as we go forward in the difficulties of this life. This is a good thing to do. This is a good place to be, not because we as pastors have figured it out. It's because we are called out and we're called together by our new identity in Christ. We need this gathering. The local gathering matters. But ultimately, the, old, the local gathering matters because churches are divine creations that are created for divine purposes. You know, when you create something, you own it. And, and you get to create the purpose for which you made it, right? So if you build a business and you want to pass down that business to your children, you know, you get to do that. You can do that. If, if you own a business and you build a business and you, you want to sell that business, if you're, if you're the guy, you know what you can do? You can do that. You, you own it. You built it. You can make something. You can make a piece of art. We've got our, we've got our covenant arts community. You, you can make art, and, and the art that you made was for your intended purpose. They're doing a fundraiser, by the way, where they're going to be selling art. And the reason they're making this art is so that they can raise money to fund the building just down the road. Incredible. This is amazing. They get to do that because they make it. Churches are divine creations intended for divine purposes. And God has divine purposes for you. He's called you out. He's called us together. But he's also called us to do something, to ultimately bear fruit as his ecclesia. And that's where we'll spend our time for the rest of today. The, the purpose for which God has drawn people all throughout church history, ever since that ragtag group of disciples dropped their nets and started following Jesus. The church that's been established has been established for divine purpose, and it's for gospel fruitfulness. Now, if you read the book of Titus, one of the things you'll see over and over again is that good works, this idea of good works continues to appear. We saw that in verse 16 just a minute ago. They profess God, but their actions don't declare that they actually know him. They're not fruitful. And fruitfulness is an important thing for the Christian life. It's something that I hope that you think about on a regular basis. It's one of God's gifts to us to understand, are we actually trusting in him genuinely, or are we trusting in other things? What is the fruit of the church? If you were to visit our house this time of year, one of the things that you'll see, it's kind of odd, 
is if you're sitting on our back porch, our neighbors, they have this massive apple tree. And it's like this time of the year where the apples and the fruit start to get heavy. And, and th- I've been to an apple orchard before, but, uh, but there are no trees like this tree. I mean, th- this tree is unbelievable in its magnitude. And it's unbelievable in the amount of fruit that it produces, which like ultimately ends up like they end up dropping in our yard and instead of going to pick them up, I just chop them up with a lawnmower and it smells like fermented apples for a while in, in the Rogers backyard, but, but that's okay. But there's this massive tree and, and it produces a lot of apples. So the question is this, why, why? Why does this apple tree produce so many apples? Well, first of all, it's an apple tree. It, it's identity, it's very makeup. It, it, it's an apple tree and therefore it makes apples, but it's also in apparently appropriate conditions for producing apples. It's, it's kind of hidden. You wouldn't guess it. It's kind of between two houses. It sits right next to a pool. You wouldn't guess that this would be the most fruitful apple tree in the world, but it is. Somehow it's getting the nutrients that it needs to produce a ton of fruit. And they're really tart, by the way. They're, they're, they're like really not that good, but they're beautiful to see, I guess, for a while. Uh, but, th- but this is the reality. But if you take that same apple tree and you put it in the desert, its makeup is the same, but its fruit is not going to be there. In fact, it may not even survive. There's a beautiful symbiotic relationship when God's people who have a new identity of bearing fruit are in the right environment for also doing that, for bearing fruit. What, what we're going to talk about is the fruit of the church is godliness. But this, this idea of fruit is something that was near and dear to the heart of our Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 16, you see this. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Fruitfulness, and even the lack thereof, may be a grace from God. One proving your faith, the other proving that you lack faith. And the church at Crete struggled with this. Their fruits were missing. Their story is fascinating. From Acts chapter 2, being at Pentecost, to going back to a culture that thought they had figured it all out, that no doubt thought they were the center of the world. In fact, the power of the world was birthed there. In verse 12, you see this. This is a testimony of a Cretan prophet, right? A prophet of their own. He says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow, that's tough. That sounds like rhetoric that you would hear of the political right against the political left, or vice versa, or maybe what Auburn fans say about Alabama fans or graduates, or what Georgia fans would say about Georgia Tech fans, if there are those out there. This is, this is rhetoric that you would hear when you're speaking against someone, not your own people, but this is a prophet of the Cretans saying that Cretans are these detestable things. And this is where Titus is planted. He's planted right in the middle of these sinful and wicked people to do the work of the Lord. And that's a good thing. That's God's grace, but it's also God's plan. Uh, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke that it's the sick people who need a physician, not the well. If you've got it okay and all figured out, then God is not pursuing you. But if you are desperate and you realize your wickedness, God is chasing you and calling you to himself. This was the hope of the Cretans. But we, as a church, need to understand something very important. And it's this. 
that whenever a people professes to know God and they shame the gospel with their immoral living, that is a great tragedy. It is a tragedy when we profess Christ as Lord and then bring shame on the gospel with immoral living. The reason that's a tragedy is because it confuses the gospel. It confuses it for you personally in your soul. It also confuses the people around you, and it's not a reflection of what the gospel does. Ultimately, what profession without good godliness, what, without godliness, what that says is that the gospel does not actually have the power to transform us. That the gospel doesn't actually have the power to deliver you from your wicked ways and to build Christ-likeness within you. Whenever we as a church, whenever we as Christians live immorally in the world and the people know, and even in our church family, when we see one another living immorally, making bad decisions that are not reflective of God's character, it confuses the gospel. It says that the gospel is just something that we believe and talk about, but it's not something that actually bears fruit in our lives. And think about the Cretans. They love philosophy. They love mythology. They love talking about the higher things of God. They loved it. Man, they felt, they felt good because you know what? They, they knew why all of the things happened around them. It was because Zeus did it. it. It was because there was an ultimate bigger purpose for what they experienced. There's a bigger purpose out there. Doesn't that feel nice? But this isn't the gospel of our Lord. The gospel of our Lord is something that is certainly believed, and it certainly gives comfort, but ultimately it drives change in our lives. And so we as a church, and the Cretans as a church, if they were be, to be found faithful, they needed to bear fruit, the fruit of godliness. And why is Paul addressing this particular thing? Well, think about Paul's story, okay? In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, the text says this, that while Paul was breathing threats, and murderous threats even, against the disciples of the Lord, he encountered Christ. And Paul, this man who also had it all figured out, right? He was a, Pharise a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He, he knew it all. Philosophically, from an Old Testament standpoint, he got it. He understood. And he spent his days suppressing and persecuting Christians. He thought he was suppressing them, but he was just persecuting them. And what happened? He encountered Christ, and his life was utterly different from that day on. Paul, from an experienced standpoint, knew that whenever you believe the risen Christ, when you have faith in the risen Christ, it drives a radical change in your life. Paul's life had changed, his mission had changed, and his action changed all because his Lord had changed. He had, been a, he had become a man who, who was consumed with pursuing godliness and helping others to do the same. You know, we've got a lot of young folks in our church. We just did a singleness series. And I know Thomas, who's here, has also preached on, on singleness and dating. And uh, I talked to a lot of young singles about uh, dating. And, and, and one of the things that I've found, this isn't true of all cases, but this is true of many, is um, some I'll speak to the guys in particular. They'll, they'll talk with their buddies about this girl that they like, right? And, and you know, they're, in, they're talking about this, guy, this girl that they like. Oh, man, she was at Tuesday night group, young adult gathering. Did you see how she worshiped the Lord? She's beautiful, right? You know, it, or something like that. And, and, and they just talk about it, and they talk about it. But they don't have the courage to be about it, right? And so, as the old saying goes, if you've got to talk about it, be about it. Okay, and, and this is what Paul is essentially saying. If you're going to talk about it, Cretans, if you're going to wax philosophical about who the risen Christ is, be about it, right? This is something that changes you. Be about it. 
So what is the fruit of the church? It's godliness. Here's a definition I think that's helpful for godliness. Godliness, which is something that we all need to be pursuing, is a lifestyle that is consistent with the character of God. Godliness is a lifestyle that is consistent with the character of God. The godly life is a life that increasingly reflects God's character and his image more consistently over time. This is what it means to be a fruitful Christian. And a fruitful church is the church, the gathering of Christians who do this well, that we reflect as a body the character of Christ in an increasing way over time. And this must be the standard by which we judge our church. What is, our ch- what is your standard for church fruitfulness? Is it good music, which we have? A gr- we have an incredible worship team here. They lead us to the throne room of grace through gospel center songs performed excellently week in and week out, led excellently week in and week out. It's an invitation by God through human means to worship the one true and living God. But good music is not the standard or the judge of what is a healthy church. Is it a good message? Well, certainly good preaching is a part of what it means to be gathered together. What is good preaching? It's whenever the the text is explained and the Spirit helps us apply that text to our lives. And so just hearing it isn't good. A good message that doesn't bring about Spirit-filled change doesn't ultimately accomplish its task. It's, it's, It's something that needs to live out in the lives, in our own lives. Spirit-filled change. You know, we sent a bunch of folks to the SBC just a little bit ago. The Southern Baptist, that stands for the Southern Baptist Convention. We, go to, we are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We went to the annual meeting, um, and it was, it was great. And, and you know what's exciting when you go to the Southern Baptist Convention? It's when you're part of a growing church, okay? And so we haven't seen a lot of these people, a lot of our friends, you know, we, we haven't seen a lot of our friends in like two years. And so like that, that one of the great things about this convention is that all of the friends that you have developed, friendships that you developed in seminary with people who are, you know, leading churches throughout the country, you get to see one another. And there's actually deep encouragement in that. It's like getting a letter from your mentor kind of a thing. I mean, it's just, it, it's something that's helpful and good. But we haven't, we didn't, we haven't seen one another in two years because of COVID. And so this year we get to go and, and, and many of the people who, you know, kind of know my story and our, our friends to me and my wife, they're like, well, how's it going? How's the church doing? And you haven't seen them in two years. Who was a part of this church two years ago? Not many, okay? That's about right. Not many. This church is exploding numerically, okay? And so it's, not, it's nice to say to your friends, to your buddies, yeah, you know, we got over 750 members. They're like, wait, isn't your church only three and a half years old? <sighs> yeah, it is. Wow, that's awesome. What, what's going on? Ah, the, Lord, the Lord's doing it, but it's awesome. But the day we think that we're a faithful church because we grow, we're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. We, we will be a faithful and healthy church when we bear fruit. And this is hard to see, but God will use the fruit and he will grow your church. And we're not against church growth. We're happy about that. It's an opportunity. It's a stewardship. And we're grateful that all of us can call one another a church family. But kudzu grows, right? That that great Japanese plant that was introduced to help earth erosion back in the 1800s and now destroys fields. It grows at a rate of like one linear foot a day. That's nuts, per vine. That's crazy, it takes over, no one likes it. It's no longer connected to its intended purpose. It was brought over for a good reason, but now it's outgrown its intended purpose. We don't wanna be that as a church. We want to continually evaluate ourselves. And my prayer is that you will continually evaluate your Christian life by the fruitfulness that is on display. This is 
something that we are called to is to bear the fruit of the gospel. And the church at Crete will be healthy when it does that. And Christ's covenant will be healthy when we do that. Keep in mind, godliness, again, is a lifestyle that is consistent with the character of God. That does not mean perfection. Let me me make that clear. That does not mean perfection. Christ has come for those who are sick. It does not mean perfection. But when the Spirit is at work within us, driving us to Christ's conformity, that will become evident. So here are some thoughts on developing godliness in your own life and godliness as a church. The first thing about godliness is this, how you develop godliness. Well, first of all, you realize that godliness results from actually knowing God. Godliness results from knowing God. Paul had given his life to this work. And let's take just a moment to look at verse 1, okay? Uh, there, there are two things that are, that are very important in verse 1 for understanding our Christian faith that we're called to. Uh, the first is this, that, that Paul was called for the sake of the elect, I'm sorry, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. On one hand, you have faith, and on the other hand, you have truth. In the Christian faith, these two things go together. When the Spirit comes and quickens your heart to know who God is, you believe the right things, and you have faith that they are absolutely true. This is not faith for the sake of faith, the kind of faith that you might see in you know, a post-game football interview. You know, we have faith that we could do it, and we did it. Right? This, this is not that kind of faith. That is not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. Essentially, I believe most people believe in a higher being. They, they, we, we are human beings created in the image of God, and one of the things that we also know is true from the Scripture is that God has written his law on our hearts. And what that means is ultimately that, that, that generally speaking, people have a recognition of a higher being and some level of faith that that higher being, that a higher being uh, exists. And so this is not just faith for faith's sake. This is not just faith in some random higher being. Jen Wilkins says this, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so this is faith, but it is faith that walks in concert with truth. If you have knowledge of truth, on the other hand, but no faith, you have some kind of cold Christianity that doesn't bear gospel fruit. This is the temptation of philosophical living, right? Of just staying in this, let's think about what God, who God is, but not really engage with knowing him. And this is the big difference between Christianity that God, that Paul is calling the Cretans to, that we are called to, and the Christianity that was evident in the churches at Crete. You know, over the la- or last week, we heard several testimonies of people who said, you know, I had a head knowledge of God, but I didn't have a heart knowledge of God. I think that's appropriate to understand. We, we too, have the temptation of mental ascend, you know, mentally ascending to the Christian tenets, but not really believing them in a life-changing kind of way. But there, and Paul wants us to know, and I want you to know, there is a massive difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. Two different things. And we grow in godliness by actually knowing God. We grow to know who he is, and we seek all the more to be like him. I was talking to Michael Tucker, a guy I work out with a lot. Uh, he was, he, we like talk about random things, like we talk about church a lot. Sometimes we talk more about church than we work out, which is not great because we're there to work out, but it is great because we love talking about the church, and so it's fun. 
okay? It's just fun. But, you know, he had just listened to a podcast, and um, he was telling me about, about it, and I, he had, he's like one of the most helpful points to him was uh, this guy said, you know, the closer you are to the finish line or to your goal, usually the harder you run after it. So right now we've got the Peachtree Road Race happening right here. I don't know if you've ever ran like a Peachtree Road Race or like a half marathon or anything like that. Um, I've done a couple of them. And that last kind of quarter mile, man, you're walking on air. You're running on air, hopefully, right? You're running on air. You know the finish line is near, and so you press towards it with all the more vigor. You go after it. This, this is similar to knowing God. The more we actually know him, the closer he is to us and we are to him, the more capacity we have to be like him, the more vigor we will have to produce the fruit of godliness. This is what God, I think, is calling us to, to not just know about God, but to know him and to allow that to produce godliness within us. The second thing about godliness is this, the desire for godliness in and of itself is a gift. We're born into this world with desires for other things, to build our own kingdom. We were born selfishly, but God has broken into the darkness of our own kingdom building, our own Babel building, to draw us into the story of himself. And so he's given us this gift of wanting to pursue godliness. And so you may be in the room today and you're like, my goodness, maybe I'm not that godly. That realization in and of itself and the desire to, to pursue it all the more is a gift of God to you. God is calling you to know him more. Thirdly, growing in godliness requires work. Growing in godliness requires work. I think sometimes we get confused about spiritual things. We think because they're spiritual, we don't have to work for them. There, there are gifts, but God has called us to work for these gifts. 1 Timothy 4, 8 or 4, 7, and 8 says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Maybe you had the Cretans in mind. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, some translations say are profitable, godliness is of value or is profitable in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life that is to come. This requires work. It requires training. Train yourself in godliness. And God has given us the very means by which we are to do that. This is one of them, gathering together with the church family. He's given us his word that we have all have access to, that we get to go to read, to know God, not just to know things about God, but to actually draw near to him. But it requires work. It's a means of grace. Even though it a lot of times feels like you're the one putting up the effort, God is actually drawing you to him through these means of grace. Fourth, the godliness looks a certain way. This is another great thing about the Christian narrative in the scriptures and what God does in our lives. Godliness looks like, looks like Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Many of us are impatient, and we need to confront our impatience, repent of our impatience, and know God, and grow to be more like him. This is what we need to do. This is what God is calling us to. I confess I was impatient with my wife. Even this weekend, as I'm preparing to write a sermon about faithfulness, I'm impatient in the home. Lord, grant me repentance. I had to go to my wife and ask for forgiveness. I'm preaching past my own sanctification at times. But this is what God is calling us to, to godliness, to model his character, to reflect who he is to the world Godliness looks a certain way. We have another picture of godliness. You've got the fruits of the Spirit, but you've also got deacon and elder qualities, right? The men that you're to set up to look to as leaders, as models within the church. They're men who have grown in grace over time. 
They're godly. And their godly, godliness looks a certain way. And Barrett's going to preach on that next week. But it looks a certain way. We should be striving after these things. But ultimately, they're all rooted in Christ. There's only been one, and this is the last point. There's only been one who's achieved perfect godliness. The reason an elder should look a certain way is because Christ looked this way. The reason the fruit of the, Paul can look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, or, or think about the fruits of the Spirit and, and give tangible expressions of what those look like is because he knew what Christ did. That he was one who was full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He was full of these things. And the gospel was calling us to them. And by God's grace, the godliness that we were designed to exude every moment of our lives was achieved for us by Christ. Perfect godliness was achieved for you. And by God's grace, we'll come to know him more and more and more and more all throughout our lives, and we will grow to be like him more and more and more. And he gives us another means of grace called communion. Um, it's one of those tangible expressions by which we can actively participate, physically participate in a picture that reminds us of who God is and what he has done for us. You know, the, the disciples, whenever they were uh, sitting at that last supper table, right before Jesus, the night that Jesus would be betrayed, and he's explaining to them that, that he, though he's lived a godly life, that he's going to die a death meant for the ungodly, meant for murderers, meant for thieves, meant for the most wicked of the day. Jesus is explaining that, yes, even though I have lived a godly life, I am going to the cross. They didn't understand. They didn't know all that that would look like. But we have this tangible expression. We have God's word and this tangible expression that reminds us of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so we invite you to participate in this. If you are a Christian and you are in good fellowship with a local church, we invite you to participate in this. If you're not a Christian, we are pumped that you are here. Uh, the standards of godliness that we've talked about, Christ has achieved for us, and we want to grow to be more like him. We're not a gathering of people who figured it all out. We are a gathering of desperate people who need the godliness of our Lord to stand on our behalf on that day. But God is also inviting you to know him as well. But if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, but we ask that you just let the elements pass before you. There's great judgment. The Bible warns us that if we participate in this action in an unholy manner, that there's judgment that accompanies, and we don't want that for you. And so the deacons are going to start going around, and I'm going to invite you to just reflect on the goodness and the godliness of Christ to think about your sinfulness and wickedness. And let's just rest gratefully in what he's done for us.